0: I'm Peter Medic, and you're listening to Episode 10 of Return of the Birds. If this is the first time you've dropped into the story, you might want to listen to the previous episodes. But you're welcome to stick around. Please visit Return of the Birds to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. I want to give a special thank you to the thousands of women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I used over the course of this audiobook. You are doing selfless and important work. It's appreciated. And I have a favor to ask. If you know someone or meet someone who likes being outdoors, being outside, or being in nature, please tell them about Return of the Birds. It would really help our show take flight. Thank you. The sequel to the deer shooting was a little sharp practice with a revolver upon a rabbit, or, properly, a hare, which was so taken with the spectacle of the campfire and the sleeping figures laying about it that it ventured quite up in our midst, but while testing the quality of some condensed milk, poor Lepus had his spine injured by a bullet. Those who lodge with nature find early rising quite in order. It is our voluptuous beds and isolation from the earth and air that prevents us from emulating the birds and the beasts in this respect. With the citizen in his chamber, it is not morning but breakfast time. The camper out, however, feels the morning air. He smells it, sees it, hears it, and springs up with the general awakening. None were tardy at the row of white chips arranged on the trunk of a prostrate tree. When breakfast was hallowed, for we were all anxious to try the venison, Few of us, however, took a second piece; It was black and strong. The day was warm and calm, and we loafed at leisure. The woods were nature's own. It was a luxury to ramble through them, rank and shaggy and venerable, but with an aspect singularly ripe and mellow. No fire had consumed and no lumberman plundered. Every trunk and limb and leaf lay where it had fallen. At every step the foot sank into the moss, which, like a soft green snow, covered everything, making every stone a cushion and every rock a bed, a grand Old Norse parlor adorned beyond art and upholstered beyond skill. Indulging in a brief nap on a rug of club moss carelessly draped at the foot of a pine, I woke up to find myself the subject of a discussion of a troop of chickadees. Presently, three or four shy wood warblers came to look upon this strange creature that had wandered into their haunts, else I passed quite unnoticed. By the lake, I met that orchard beauty, the cedar waxwing, spending his vacation in the assumed character of a flycatcher, whose part he performed with great accuracy and deliberation. Only a month before, I had seen him regaling himself upon cherries in the garden and orchard. But as the dog days approached, he set out for the streams and lakes to divert himself with the more exciting pursuits of the chase. From the tops of the dead trees along the border of the lake, he would sally out in all directions, sweeping through long curves, alternately mounting and descending, now reaching up for a fly high in the air, now sinking low for one near the surface and returning to his perch in a few moments for a fresh start. The pine finch was also here, though, as usual, never appearing at home, but with a waiting, expectant air. Here also I met my beautiful singer, the hermit thrush, but with no song in his throat now. A week or two later, and he was on his journey southward. This was the only species of thrush I saw in the Adirondacks, Near Lake Sanford, where there are large tracts of raspberry and wild cherry, I saw numbers of them. A boy whom we met, driving home some stray cows, said it was the partridge bird, no doubt from the resemblance of its note, when disturbed, to the cluck of the partridge. Nate's pond contained perch and sunfish, but no trout. Its water was not pure enough for trout. Was there ever any other fish so fastidious as this, requiring such sweet harmony and perfection of the elements for its production and sustenance? On higher ground about a mile distant was a trout pond, the shores which were steep and rocky. Our next move was to tramp about 12 miles through the wilderness, most of the way in a drenching rain to a place called the Lower Ironworks. Situated on the road leading into long lake, which is about a day's drive further on. We found a comfortable hotel there, and were glad enough to avail ourselves of the shelter and warmth which it offered. There was a little settlement and some quite good farms. The place commands a fine view to the north of Indian Pass, Mount Mercy, and the adjacent mountains. On the afternoon of our arrival, and also the next morning, the view is completely shut off by fog, but... About the middle of forenoon, the wind changed and the fog lifted and revealed to us the grandest mountain scenery we had beheld on our journey. There they sat, about fifteen miles distant, a group of them, Mount Mercy, Mount McIntyre, and Mount Golden, the real Adirondack monarchs. It was an impressive sight, rendered doubly so by the sudden manner in which it was revealed to us by that scene-shifter, the wind. I saw blackbirds at this place, and sparrows, and the solitary sandpiper, and the Canada woodpecker, and a large number of hummingbirds. Indeed, I saw more of the latter here than I ever before saw in any one locality. Their squeaking and whirring were almost incessant. The Adirondack ironworks belonged to the past. Over 30 years ago, a company in Jersey City purchased some 60,000 acres of land lying along the Adirondack River and abounding in magnetic iron ore. The land was cleared, roads, dams, and forges constructed, and the work of manufacturing iron begun. At this point, a dam was built across the Hudson, the waters of which flowed back into Lake Sanford, about five miles above. The lake itself being some six miles long, tolerable navigation was thus established for a distance of 11 miles, to the upper works, which seemed to have been the only works in operation. At the lower works, besides the remains of the dam, the only vestige I saw was a long, low mound, overgrown with grass and weeds, that suggested a rude earthwork. We were told that it once was a pile of wood containing hundreds of cords, cut in regular lengths and corded up here for use in the furnaces. At the upper works, some 12 miles distant, quite a village had been built, which was now entirely abandoned with the exception of a single family. A march to this place was our next undertaking. The road for two or three miles kept up from the river and led us by three or four rough, stumpy farms. It then approached the lake and kept along its shores. It was here a dilapidated corduroy structure that compelled the traveler to keep an eye on his feet. Blue jays, two or three small hawks, a solitary wild pigeon and roughed grouse were seen along the route. Now and then the lake gleamed through the trees, or we crossed on a shaky bridge some of its arms or inlets. After a while, we began to pass dilapidated houses by the roadside. One little frame house I remembered particularly. The door was off its hinges and leaned against the jams. The windows had but few panes left, which glared vacantly. The yard and little garden spot were overrun with a heavy growth of timothy, and the fences had all long since gone to decay. At the head of the lake, a large stone building projected from the steep bank and extended over the road. A little beyond, the valley opened up to the east, and looking ahead, about one mile, we saw smoke going up from a single chimney. Pressing on, just as the sun was setting, we entered the deserted village. The barking of the dog brought the whole family into the street, and they stood till we came up. Strangers in that country were a novelty, and we were greeted like familiar acquaintances. Hunter, the head, proved to be an Irishman. His wife was a Scotchwoman. They had a family of five or six children, two of them grown-up daughters, modest, comely young women, as you would find anywhere. The elder of the two had spent a winter in New York with her aunt, which perhaps made her a little more self-conscious when in the presence of strange young men. Hunter was hired by the company at a dollar a day to live here and to see that things were not wantonly destroyed but allowed to go to decay properly and decently. He had a substantially roomy frame house and any amount of grass and woodland. He had good barns and kept considerable stock and raised various farm products but only for his own use. As the difficulties of transportation to market, some 70 miles distant, made it no object. He usually went to Ticonderoga on Lake Champlain once a year for his groceries, etc. His post office was 12 miles below at the Lower Works, where the mail passed twice a week. There was not a doctor, or a lawyer, or a preacher within 25 miles. In winter, months elapsed without their seeing anybody from the outside world. In summer, parties occasionally passed through here on their way to Indian Pass and Mount Mercy. Hundreds of Timothy Hay annually rot down upon the cleared land. After nightfall, we went out and walked up and down the grass-grown streets. It was a curious and melancholy spectacle. The remoteness and surrounding wilderness rendered the scene doubly impressive. And the next day and the next, the place was an object of wonder. There were about 30 buildings in all, most of them small frame houses, with a door and two windows opening into a small yard in front and a garden in the rear such as are usually occupied by the laborers in a country manufacturing district. There was one large two-story boarding house, a schoolhouse with a cupola and a bell in it, and numerous sheds and forges and a sawmill. In front of the sawmill and ready to be rolled into their place on the carriage lay a large pile of pine logs, so decayed that one could run his walking stick through them. Nearby, a building filled with charcoal was busting open, and the coal was going to waste on the ground. The smelting works were also much crumbled by time. The schoolhouse was still used. Every day, one of the daughters assembles her smaller brothers and sisters there and school keeps. The district library contained nearly 100 readable books, which were well-thumbed. The absence of society, etc., had made the family all good readers. We brought them an illustrated newspaper, which was awaiting them at the post office at the lower works. It was read and reread with great eagerness by every member of the household. The iron ore cropped out on every hand. There was apparently mountains of it. One could see it in the stones along the road. But the difficulties met with in separating the iron from its alloys, together with the expense of transportation and the failure of certain railroad schemes, caused the works to be abandoned. No doubt, the time is not distant when these obstacles will be overcome and this region reopened. At present, it is an admirable place to go. There is fishing and hunting and boating and mountain climbing within easy reach and a good roof over your head at night, which is no small matter. One is often disqualified for enjoying the woods after he gets there by loss of sleep and of proper food taken at seasonable times. This point attended to is in the humor for any enterprise. About a half mile northeast of the village is Lake Henderson, a very irregular and picturesque sheet of water. Surrounded by dark evergreen forests and abutted by two or three bold promontories with mottled white and gray rocks, its greatest extent in any one direction is perhaps less than a mile. Its waters are perfectly clear and abound in lake trout. A considerable stream flows into it which comes down from Indian Pass. A mile south of the village is Lake Sanford. This is a more open and exposed sheet of water, and much larger. From some parts of it, Mount Mercy and the gorge of the Indian Pass are seen to excellent advantage. The Indian Pass shows as a huge cleft in the mountain, the gray walls rising on one side perpendicularly for many hundred feet. This lake abounds in white and yellow perch and in pickerel, of the latter, single specimens are often caught which weigh fifteen pounds. There were a few wild ducks on both lakes. A brood of the Goosener, or Red merganser, the young not yet able to fly, were the occasion of some spirited rowing. But with two pairs of oars and a trim light skiff, it was possible to come up with them. Yet we could not resist the temptation to give them chase every day when we first came on the lake. It needed a good long pole to sober us down so we could fish. The land on the east side of the lake had been burnt over and was now mostly grown up with wild cherry and red raspberry bushes. Ruffed grouse were found here in great numbers. The Canada grouse is also common. I shot eight of the latter in less than an hour on one occasion. The eighth one, which was an old male, was killed with smooth pebble stones, my shot having run short. The wounded bird ran under a pile of brush like a frightened hen. Thrusting a forked stick down through the inner seas, I soon stopped his breathing. Wild pigeons were quite numerous also. These latter recall a singular freak of the sharp-shinned hawk. A flock of pigeons alighted on the top of a dead hemlock standing in the edge of a swamp. I got over the fence and moved toward them across an open space. I had not taken many steps when, on looking up, I saw the whole flock again in motion, flying very rapidly around the butt of a hill. Just then, this hawk alighted on the same tree. I stepped back into the road and paused a moment, in doubt which course to go. At that instant, the little hawk launched into the air and came straight as an arrow toward me. I looked in amazement, but in less than half a minute, he was within fifty feet of my face, coming full tilt as if he had sighted my nose. Almost in self-defense, I let fly one barrel of my gun, and the mangled form of the audacious marauder fell literally between my feet. Of wild animals such as bears, panthers, wolves, wildcats, etc., we neither saw nor heard any in the Adirondacks. A howling wilderness, Thoreau says, seldom ever howls. The howling is chiefly done by the imagination of the traveler. Hunter said he often saw bear tracks in the snow, but had never yet met Bruin. Deer are more or less abundant everywhere, and one old sportman declares there is yet a single moose in these mountains. On our return, a pioneer settler, at whose house we stayed overnight, told us a long adventure he had had with a panther. He related how it screamed, how it followed him in the brush, how he took to his boat, how its eyes gleamed from the shore, and how he fired his rifle at them with fatal effect. His wife, in the meantime, took something from a drawer, and, as her husband finished his recital, she produced a toenail of the identical animal marked with dramatic effect. But better than fish or game or grand scenery or any adventure by night or day is the wordless intercourse with rude nature one has on these expeditions. It is something to press the pulse of her old mother by mountain lakes and streams and know what health and vigor are in her veins and how regardless of observation she disports herself. 1866
1: You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic with bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Post-production and mastering by Counterweight Creative. Recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. Engineered, produced, and directed by Peter Medic. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. For more updates, we invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at 44from26.com or visit returnofthebirds.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org. This is 44 from 26.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you hear one or two and want to tell me about them, Stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Till next time, chirp away.